<clears throat> the last uh, section of this chapter on uh, the five khandhas in the Dhammanupasana is called Arising and Passing Away of the Aggregates. According to the Satipatthana Sutta, to contemplate the five aggregates requires a clear recognition of each, followed by directing awareness to their arising, samudaya, and their passing away, attagamma. The second stage of practice reveals the impermanent character of the aggregates, and to some extent thereby also points to their conditioned nature. In the discourses, contemplation of the impermanent nature of the aggregates, and thereby of oneself, stands out as a particularly prominent cause for gaining realization, uh, probably, probably because of its powerful potential for awakening, the Buddha spoke of this particular contemplation as his lion's roar, though also one of the standard ways of um, describing stream entry is the insight into impermanence, yankinchi samudaya dhammang sabantang niroda damanti, whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation. So that's one of the, the standard um, sort of expressions of insight when someone uh, enters the, the stream. So that quality of, of anicca and then <coughs> that um, term, you know, whatever, yankinchi, um, it refers to all of the the, uh, the five candors, all of the different uh, subjective aspects of experience. The reason underlying the eminent position of contemplating the impermanent nature of the aggregates is that it directly counters all conceit and I or mind making. That's ahankara and mamankara. And um, in that uh, there's this um, teaching that the, the Buddha gave to Megya which um, expresses that very uh, very neatly. <coughs> this is Megya was the um, uh, a bhikkhu who was inexperienced who wanted to go off and practice by himself, and the Buddha said, "You're not ready yet." And he said, "Yes, I am. Please let me uh, let me go off." And uh, <coughs> and so then he went off to. Um, go and meditate by himself in some mango grove and his head was his mind was filled with all sorts of um, uh, agitated and unprofitable thoughts and feelings and he came back with his tail between his legs at the end of the day to see the Buddha and said you know very well sir you were right <laughs> and then the Buddha gives him a, a, um, a series of uh, pieces of advice and it, uh, it culminates in these different uh, aspects of, of meditation practice uh, the unattractive aspect of the body should be maintained in being for the purpose of abandoning lust. Loving-kindness for the purpose of abandoning ill-will. Mindfulness of breathing for the purpose of cutting off discursive thoughts. Perception of impermanence should be established for the purpose of eliminating the conceit, I am, as mimana. For when a person perceives impermanence, perception of not-self becomes established in him. And when a person perceives not-self, he arrives at the elimination of the conceit, I am, and that is Nibbāna, here and now. So that's uh, in the uh, Udāna, section 4, Sutta number 1, also in the uh, Book of the Nines in the Anguttara. So that uh, contemplating the impermanent nature of the aggregates is uh, it, uh, that it directly counters all conceit and I or mind making, so that uh, ahankara, ahang means I am, kara means to make or to do so, ma uh, made of I am, ahankara, uh, made of I, mamankara, um, uh, the mamang is the feeling of uh, mine, ownership, so I making and mine making is uh, the best way of rendering those in, in English. The direct experience of the fact that every aspect of oneself is subject to change undermines the basis on which the conceit and I, or mine, making take their stand. Conversely, to the extent to which one is no longer under the influence of I, or mine, notions in regard to the five aggregates, any change or alteration of the aggregates will not lead to sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. 
So if the mind is attached to the aggregates, then when, when they change, then it leads to dukkha. There's not uh, if the mind is not attached to the aggregates, then um, <coughs> then there's no there's no dukkha um, associated with that. So the, that sense of of uh, non-attachment. But uh, it's also in uh, in that um, respect when we talk about non-attachment, it's a, a kind of maybe the best way of describing it is as a caring non-attachment rather than a a, an aversive or like um, so long, you know, <laughs> I'm not interested or, or a, a kind of a rejecting attitude which is um, easy to undertake in terms of uh, the mind being influenced by uh, vibhava tanha, the desire to get rid of, but it's a, it's a, a, a what you have in the, the Buddha's way and the, the Buddha's manifestation of, of um, the mind's relation to the the, the, the sense world is that there's the uh, emotion, uh, the emotional basis for relating to the sense world is metta karuna mudita upeka, loving kindness, compassion, uh, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So that that sense of uh, non-attachment is not aversive or indifferent or or, or kind of um, uh, say uh, uh, a, a numbing of of experience, but rather it's a a caring non-attachment or or a, what I like to call a uh, unentangled participating. As the Buddha emphatically advised, give up the aggregates since none of them is truly your own. Give them up because they don't belong to you. It's like, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's not yours, so don't be concerned about it. It's like, um, you're, you're not really involved, it's not really your your issue, uh, don't, uh, they don't belong to you, so don't, uh, going around presuming that the, you're responsible for them or that you're, you're the owner, it can only bring, can only bring grief. So that uh, <coughs> that sense of um, giving up the aggregates, uh, letting go of the sense of ownership is, uh, is a, um, a kind of direct way of, of, say, countering those habits of feeling you know, these are who and what we are and that they, they uh, belong to us, to our own body, personality, and also the the uh, material objects and things of the world, our possessions, our reputation, our family, and, and so forth, that we uh, can feel that we, we are vividly own our parents, our children, our homes, our, our, our career, our reputation, and so on, are, are as much owned by us as, as our, our bodies and our personalities. So the Buddha's encouragement is give up the aggregates because they're not yours. It's like, you know, <laughs> you're not the owner, so if you go around thinking that you are, it, it's only going to bring grief. And there's a wonderful Polish proverb that I came across um, last year, which reflects this as well, which says, uh, not my circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> so there's great wisdom, I don't know if have got any Polish people here, there's great wisdom in the Polish mentality, not my circus, not my monkeys. This isn't my show. I'm not. I'm not in control here. These are not. These are. They're monkeys doing their thing, but it's, they're not mine. Not my circus. Not my monkeys. In practical terms, contemplating the arising and passing away of each aggregate can be undertaken by observing change taking place in every aspect of one's personal experience. Be these, for example, the cycle of breaths or the circulation of the blood the change of feelings from pleasant to unpleasant, the variety of cognitions and volitional reactions arising in the mind, or the changing nature of consciousness arising at this or that sense door. Such practice can then build up to contemplating the arising and passing away of all five aggregates together. When one comprehensively surveys the five aggregate components of any experience and at the same time witnesses the impermanent nature of this experience. Once again, this, that can sound a little bit technical, but it, um, in uh, uh, in essence, what that is uh, is saying is bringing the 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 lens of of anicca, developing the anicca sanya, the perception of impermanence, just to whatever you're experiencing, whether you're you're walking or um, or <coughs> or um, sitting down to say, oh, I, I was standing, now I'm sitting; I was walking, now I'm now I'm uh, now I'm standing. Um, was my left foot? Now it's my right foot. Was my left foot my right foot? You know that the simple look, uh, uh, looking at the quality of change within uh, experience, that the uh, the feeling of 
of the wind on our skin, the sound of, of uh, a person's voice, um, whatever it might be, just to, to be bringing the uh, attention from the content of experience to the, the fluid nature of it, just to, to see uh, the, the quality of, of impermanence. And that has a, a tremendously um, powerful uh, effect on the, on the development of wisdom. And I, I've, men I've mentioned many times how uh, when I had a opportunity to do a three-month retreat in the forest that Shidhurst many years ago, my tenth rains, uh, I was given the chance to be in a there was only one kuti in the forest at Chithurst at that time, and we sort of take it in turns uh, to go and, and spend retreat time in there. So in 1988, huh? yeah, 88, I had my tenth uh, rains there. And, uh, and so I decided to, to try and make this, the practice as simple as possible. So rather than trying to, um, I, I decided I wouldn't uh, read anything um, for the, uh, at all for the first month, and then the second month I just had the Diganikaya that I read one sutra a day. And uh, to, to make the practice extremely simple. So uh, I decided, okay, I'll, I'll make it as simple and as plain and as, as unremarkable as possible. I'll just look at Anicca. Whatever it is, uh, I'll just focus on the, the quality of change, whether it's a mind state, whether it's a physical sensation, or just something in the forest, or, the, or whatever's happening, just to notice, oh, it's changing. You know, the, uh, I, I, you know, I lit the fire, and, now the, uh, and the, the water was cold, now the water's boiling, it's changing. <laughs> The, the, it was night, now it's daytime, it's changing. So uh, to my surprise, because I, I thought, well, that's, you know, that's a pretty basic kind of practice, but it'll keep things simple. And, and uh, Whereas my mind often inclines towards something, wanting to, to aim for the sort of most refined or the, the most sort of powerful or significant or, or promising kind of a, uh, elevated uh, aspects of, of teaching and such like, uh, my thought was, well, this is kind of going to be really simple and basic and keep it um, sort of at ground level. But the effect of, of that development of that, uh, um, say, the perception of, of Anicca was extraordinarily uh, profound and, and um, impressive. So that uh, that sense of just uh, whatever the, the kanda we're talking about, whether it's feeling or thoughts or moods or perceptions or physical sensations or the changes of the, of the body or the material world just to keep looking at, at everything in terms of yeah it's changing it's changing rather than i like it or i don't like it it's what i want is what i don't want it's what i expect what i don't expect it should be this way it shouldn't be this way to just park all of that say well doesn't matter whether it should or shouldn't be this way is it changing doesn't matter whether it's inside or outside is it changing doesn't matter whether it's pleasant or painful is it changing and that um that <coughs> say uh, a unifying quality of that in of that reflection is extraordinarily potent. So I, I do uh, recommend that as a practice um, to to take on it sometimes. Contemplating the arising and passing away of the five aggregates also highlights their conditioned nature. The interrelatedness of impermanence, anicca. And, and conditionality uh, with regard to the five aggregates is practically depicted in a discourse from the Kanda Sangyutta in which realization of the impermanent nature of the five aggregates takes place based on understanding of their conditioned nature. Since the conditions for the arising of each aggregate are impermanent, this passage points out how could the conditionality ar arisen Sorry, how could the conditionally arisen aggregate be permanent? Since their causes are impermanent and unstable, how could the effect, how could the, the aggregate that arises be anything that's solid or permanent or, or substantial? Because the, the, uh, the, the cause is uh, unstable and changing, therefore the result must be unstable and changing too. Another discourse in the Kanda Sangyuta relates the arising and passing away of the material aggregate to nutriment. Our feelings, cognitions, and volitions depend on contact and consciousness on name and form. Dependent on nutriment, contact, and name and form, these five, five aggregates in turn constitute the condition for the arising of pleasant and unpleasant experiences. The same discourse points out that against the all-too-apparent advantage, asada, of experiencing pleasure through any of the aggregates, stands the disadvantage, the Ardinava, of their impermanent and therefore unsatisfactory nature. 
That's the only way out, the nisarana, is to abandon desire and attachment towards these five aggregates. So those, those three qualities, the asada, adinava, and nisarana, the gratification, the danger, and the escape, as they're also called, the advantage, the disadvantage, and the way out, these are our uh, a form that's frequently referred to uh, by the, the Buddha in terms of relating to sense experience and to how the mind t chases after the pleasant, but when it's chasing after the pleasant, it doesn't recognize the, the, uh, the disadvantage there. So that um, passage on nutriment, um, which is ahara, so that the uh, the word for food is ahara, like physical food is ahara, but these are uh, these are nutriments, that sort of things that feed or nourish the different aspects of of experience. And so, this um, passage is from the Kanda Sangyutta, Sutta number sixty-four. There are these four nutriments for the establishing of beings who have taken birth, or for the support of those in search of a place to be born. Which four? Physical food, gross or refined. Contact, pasa, as the second. Consciousness, vijnana, is the third. And intention, chetana, is the fourth. These are the four nutriments for the establishing of beings who have taken birth, or for the support of those in search of a place to be born. Where there is passion, delight and craving for the nutriment of physical food, consciousness lands there and grows. Where consciousness lands and grows, mentality, materiality, nama rupa, alights. Where mentality, materiality alights, there is the growth of volitional formations, sankhara. Where there is the growth of volitional formations, there is the production of renewed becoming in the future. Where there is the production of renewed becoming in the future, there is birth, aging and death, together, I tell you, with sorrow, affliction and despair. Just as when there is dye, lac, yellow or pigment, indigo or crimson, a dyer or a painter would paint the picture of a woman or a man, complete in all its parts, on a well-polished panel or wall, or on a piece of cloth. In the same way, where there is passion, delight and craving, for the nutriment of physical food, consciousness lands there and grows, and so on and so forth, repeating that passage. Together I tell you with sorrow, affliction and despair. So then he says that he makes the same point with the other three kinds of nutriment, so not just physical food, but second one is contact, third one consciousness, and the fourth one is intention. Then he goes on to say, where there is no passion for the nutriment of physical food, where there is no delight, no craving, then consciousness does not land there or grow. Mentality, materiality does not alight. There is no growth of volitional formations. There is no production of renewed becoming in the future. When there is no production of renewed becoming in the future, there is no birth, aging and death. That, I tell you, is quite free from sorrow, affliction or despair. And he gives a very uh, very compelling image um, to demonstrate this quality of, of not landing or not having a place to, to land or to settle. Not giving consciousness uh, a place to land. Just as if there were a roofed house or a roofed hall having windows on the north, the south or the east. When the sun rises and a shaft of light has entered by way of the window, where does it land? On the western wall, venerable sir. And if there is no western wall... On the ground, venerable sir. And if there is no ground, on the water, venerable sir. And if there is no water, it does not land, venerable sir. In the same way, when there is no passion for physical nutriment, contact, consciousness or intention, consciousness does not grow or land. That, I tell you, is quite free from sorrow, affliction or despair. So it's a, an interesting way of, of phrasing things in terms of nutriment, giving the food... Uh, giving nourishment uh, not to the body but to also to um, uh, uh, our uh, uh, the mind in various ways, and that that uh, when it's deprived of that that food, as it were, when it's not um, um, so delighted in or that that contact 
um, is not uh, attached to, delighted in, or grasped, then that's uh, not giving the uh, the um, the mind a place to land. And as you said, that is uh, that that groundlessness or that not giving a, uh, a a place to land, like an I who is the receiver, an I who is the experiencer, um, uh, a me who is the doer, and so forth. Then uh, that leads to the um, being free of sorrow, affliction, and despair. So that's um, Sanyutta. Uh, Khandavaga, the, uh, the, the Connected Discourses on the Five Khandas, section 12, and uh, section number 64. A related viewpoint on arising Samudaya is provided in yet another discourse from the same Khanda Sanyuta, which points out that delight provides the condition for the future arising of the aggregates, while the absence of delight leads to their cessation. This passage links the conditioned and conditioning nature of the aggregates to a comprehension of dependent co-arising. In the Maha Hati Padoma, uh, Padopama Sutta, the greater discourse on the um, simile of the elephant's footprint, such comprehension of dependent co-arising leads to an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And as uh, he, he quoted that before, saying... Um, uh, one who understands the the dependent co-arising sees the dhamma. One who sees the dhamma sees the sees the dependent uh, co-arising. From a practical perspective, contemplation of the conditioned and conditioning nature of the five aggregates can be undertaken by becoming aware how any bodily or mental experience depends on and is affected by a set of conditions. Since these conditions are not amenable to full personal control. One evidently does not have power over the very foundation of one's own subjective experience. I and mine turn out to be utterly dependent on what is other, a predicament which reveals the truth of anatta. One centrally important condition, however, which can be brought under personal control through systematic training of the mind, is identification with the five aggregates. So you can't control what the aggregates are doing, but what can be controlled is the mind's habit of saying these are me and mine. So, and I, I don't know how many times I say this, but virtually every visitor who comes or anyone who's asking for advice in the community, um, that we can't control the world, but we can control the attitude that we have towards the world. We can't control our mind or our body, but the attitude is where uh, we have control. So that is where... Um, the ending of dukkha can be found. You can't, and as the Buddha said, you, you can't get to the end of the world by walking, but unless you get to the end of the world, you won't get to the end of suffering. And the way that we get to the kind of, quote-unquote end of the world is through the attitude towards it. That's, that's where the, the mind can make a, 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 a radical difference. This crucial conditioning factor of identification is the central focus of this Satipatthana contemplation. And its complete removal constitutes the successful completion of the practice. So completely letting go of eye-making and mind-making um, is, the, as he describes, the successful completion of the practice. According to the discourses, detachment from these constituent parts of one's personality through contemplating the conditioned and impermanent nature of the aggregates is of such significance that direct knowledge of the arising and passing away of the five aggregates is a sufficient qualification for becoming a stream enterer. As I said, that um, that's the uh, uh, the insight into whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation. And that's the the kind of um, insight. Even though on a conceptual level that's not complicated or intellectually demanding, what goes up must come down. What begins ends. Conceptually, that's easy to to, to grasp. But to see that not only that that's the, the, the truth of everything moment by moment, but also to, to feel the implications of that. Or if that's the case, there, then why run away from this painful thing? Or why chase, chase after this pleasant thing? Uh, why call this me and mine? Aha. So it's, that, uh, it's getting the aha that comes from that uh, insight into change that's, that, that makes all the difference. Not only that, but contemplation of the five aggregates is capable of leading to all stages of awakening and is still practiced even by arahants. 
This vividly demonstrates the central importance of this contemplation, which progressively exposes and undermines self-identifications and attachments and thereby becomes a powerful manifestation of the direct path to realization. Well, that's the, uh, the completion of that chapter. So any particular questions, thoughts? I've got one item. Um, the, uh, I think, I don't know whether this is here or whether it's appropriate here, but I was reading the other day, Access to Insight, and I found again the Atakari Sutta. And the Brahman goes to the, the Buddha and says, I understand that you teach there is no self-doer, no other-doer. And he said, I have not or never taught that Brahman. And he said, is there an exertion? Is there that which moves forward? Is there that which moves back? And he says, they, they play the interplay that normally goes on in the text. So he points to a, a self-doer. But that, in the notes and the thing it says, it doesn't say that um, not self doesn't exist. So you've got these almost two, two views. You know, the, the aggregates aren't still not seeing self. But there is a doer, there's an exertion. So the only way I can, and I can't confirm this, but the only way I can think of it is in, in the Tendai Buddhism, they say that there are two truths. So you've got two truths uh, make one reality. So the, the knowing of those different axes makes the reality. It's not, there's a fixed view, you know, I'm not here, or I am here. But those two truths make the one reality in the middle way. It's very deep, it's very difficult, you know, but I would urge people to look at that sutra as well and sort of maybe in that Atakari sutra, you know. Yeah, there, there's a similar passage in the uh, Sutta Nipata. I think Ajahn Jitapala has it on her, her sort of a, a quotation on your emails at the end. It says, um, huh? That was last year's. <laughs> on Ajahn Jitapala's emails last year, there's a quote from the Sutta Nipata that says something like, um, the wise one does not see anything in the world as belonging to them, but they do not see that anything in the world is not belonging to them either. And so those, those kind of statements are, are, are rare, but you do get them once in a while. They, uh, and I, uh, the way I read it is also that you know, the, the Buddha is speaking in a context. So if he's talking to an aversive type, um, uh, or sort of a nihilistic type, uh, then he will um, uh, he will maybe bring in that more kind of um, in, so inclusive angle. Um, but if he's talking to a more essentialist, life affirming type, then he'll lean towards the the negation, letting go type. And then because uh, there's there's this uh, this dialogue he has with Diganaka, and um, and uh, <coughs> Diganaka is this, this uh, Diganaka means long long fingernails. So he's this, this sort of yogi that comes to see the Buddha in the, uh, I think it's in the Boar's Cave on Vulture Peak. He comes to see him and, um, and he says, um, <clears throat> nothing is pleasing to me, nothing is pleasing to me. Uh, like, I, I, I have um, a total dispassion towards everything. And then the Buddha says, well, does that view, nothing is pleasing to me, does that not please you either? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's all the same, it's all the same, you know. And, uh, and then, uh, but then the Buddha goes on to say uh, that how that um, the uh, Diganaka, even though his view is, he's, he's still attached to that view, it's, it's closer, his view is closer to freedom from lust, freedom from attachment, freedom from, from clinging, um, than the view of that sort of life affirmation and, and grasping and, and sensuality. And so Diganaka is very pleased because, oh, the Buddha you know, affirms my view. The Buddha affirms my view. So <clears throat> the, uh, the Buddha was always trying to, um, say, speak in ways that were appropriate to the people he was talking to. And so that, um, uh, I'd have to look up that uh, Atakari Sutta and see well, who was he talking to and, and what was the, the context for that. But it's it's like any any kind of conversation any kind of dialogue you have to bring into the picture and what was what was the occasion and what was the you know the background and why that kind of language might have been might have been chosen and, and so that you get a um a way of informing the 
the the dialogue. But yes, it, you can be pretty sure that any kind of view that says, "Yeah, okay, now I've got it," the the thing to do is to turn the attention. Well, who who is it that's got it? <laughs> what is it that's been got? You know, how does any how is there anyone to to get anything really? You know, who is the owner of that thing that's been got? <laughs> and then that that's. Uh, they, that's exactly the kind of eye-making and mind-making, ahankara and mamankara, that is the, the sort of root troublemaker. And that that application of the, this sort of reflection on, on the five khandhas and, the, and anicca is it's like also turning that attention onto that I, me and mine feeling because it's a, the, uh, the experience of I and me and mine that we don't recognize that they're, they're also impermanent. The feeling of I arises and passes away. It's also impermanent, not self. But we we think of it in terms of oh, I've got I've got a sense of self, or I have an ego, or that, that's that's always there. But we, what the Buddha's pointing to is well, look, <laughs> is it not just a, another mental uh, event, mental structure that arises and passes away, just like a thought or a, a mood or a feeling or a sense perception? And then the 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 meditation, particularly insight meditation. Helps bring the attention to that, so that can be seen that that the I feeling, me and mine, is can be recognized. Oh, it's a, there is just a feeling. It's just like a, a mental formation that arises. So I, me, mine, and then it, it passes away. And, and then uh, you, we because we, we all know that because we actually we we enjoy experiences whereby we forget ourselves. That's uh, why we like. Um, yeah, novelty, or why we like um, exciting movies or uh, interesting conversations, because when you're interested or your mind is locked into fear or desire or, or novelty or even aversion, uh, you know I've I've forgotten myself. People like dangerous, dangerous, life-threatening sports, because when you're standing on a cliff with 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 your your boots on half an inch of ledge, you're not thinking about me. <laughs> you know, you you've gone. There's just this, <laughs> and uh, people—that's uh, a, a, a blissful experience. But the that we how we hold the idea that that you know, I am always here. But like like David Hume's uh, uh, comment, yes, uh, I was reading out yesterday how um, the, when my mind is switched off and I'm fast asleep, you you can effectively say I don't exist. Because at that time, you know, I, 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 the I am is not. So he, he was a, observant of that fe- that sense that the I am feeling arises and passes away. It's not there all the time. Another question. Yes. About the movements, um, I've been a bit confused actually for a while about the difference between contact and consciousness in terms of direct experience, right? Consciousness, in my understanding, is just sort of the raw impact of the external light, for example, in the case of visual. Well, the the consciousness is it's usually um, this it's it's bound up with the sense con, sense contact. So it's eye consciousness, ear consciousness, mind consciousness, nose consciousness. So that it's um, and then the contact is the coming together of say light. The um, the I and I consciousness, so that you can't really uh, the consciousness is part of contact. So it's a it's an element of it. It's an it's an attribute of it. So you can't really tease them apart. They're they're sort of they're um, uh, intrinsically related in that way. So you wouldn't because they're. So you wouldn't distinguish them from another. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking also in terms of depending on origination. How because there's contact and consciousness. Well, they they also sometimes the same words like um, they they use say say like the word consciousness. Consciousness is part of contact, but it also appears earlier on in dependent origination. But it's the same word, but it's, also, it's being used to refer to different qualities. So um, it, it can be deceptive. So particularly words like vijnana, consciousness, 
sankhara. They have many different usages. They're used in lots of different circumstances. So it's not like if the word is used, it only means one thing. It's like the word thing can mean a lot of different things. <laughs> so again, you have to look at the context. Okay, how is this this word being used here? When uh, when it's it, it's being employed in this sentence. Okay, how how is it being um, say uh, employed in relationship to the other things that are being said? So yeah, uh, it often takes a, a bit of picking it up and and uh, and. Uh, sorting it through to see, okay, well in that context it means this, or in other context it means something else. So consciousness in, in dependent origination might be a different consciousness than in the aggregate? Uh, yeah, it, 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 there's different shades of meaning. So, so it's, a, uh, it's not identical. It's not entirely different, but it's not, it's not identical. So that when you, you, you look at that, um, uh, you know, within that different context, it has a slightly different shade of meaning. Okay, well, let's go. On. Well, I, I, for vinyana, I tend to use the word discriminative consciousness. Which is not the one that is coming in the five languages. Yes, which it is. Yes, it is. Because because in English the word consciousness is used in a variety of different ways. So the the vijnana in the five khandas, because vi means separate or um, distinct or partial. Jnana is knowing, so it's like... The, the the knowing or the, the knowledge or distinguishes this from that or one thing from another, so uh, so for me the the uh, discriminative consciousness is is a more accurate term than sense consciousness in terms of the vijnana in the five khandas, but it 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 takes sort of a sort of sitting down with it and, and sort of looking at it and exploring it to get a feeling for how those things all work together. Because I think there's one sort of genre that would put a candidate whether consciousness and sankara are different or not. Well, there's the, in the in the uh, in the Mahavedala Sutta, in the questions and answers. Yeah. It says, uh, uh, "Feeling, perception, and consciousness are they are they conjoined or disjoined?" And he said, "They're conjoined. They're not disjoined." Well, it's not the Buddha. It's it's Maha. It's Venerable Sariputra. Talking to Mahaputita, they're conjoined. They're not disjoined. You can't, you can't uh, entirely separate one out from the other. And and then there's one sentence or another where contact and feeling is also included, and and perception, which was in the first place very confusing, but in the first, uh, for the process of how we experience things, it's true. You can't. Yeah, I'm not sure where where that comes. Uh, if you can search it out, yeah, I'm not. Sh- that one's not so familiar to me. But the the one, the feeling, perception, and consciousness being conjoined, that's in the. I, I was quoting it the other day, from the Mahavedala Sutta. Okay, let's carry on to the next chapter for a little bit. So this is Dhammas. And the sense spheres, the ayatanas. The sense spheres and the fetters. The previous Satipatthana exercise was concerned with analyzing subjective personality with the help of the aggregate scheme. An alternative or complementary approach is to turn to the relationship between oneself and the outer world. This is the topic covered by contemplation of the sense spheres, the salayatana in Pali, the six ayatanas, which directs awareness to the six internal and external sense spheres, the ajatika, uh, ajatika bahira ayatana. Ajata uh, is um, the uh, internal, bahida is external. Ayatana means the the sense sphere. Uh, 
and to the fetter arising independence on them. Here are the instructions for this exercise. He knows the eye, he knows forms, and he knows the fetter that arises dependent on both. And he also knows how an unarisen fetter can arise, how an arisen fetter can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed fetter can be prevented. He knows the ear, he knows sounds, he knows the fetter that arises dependent on both. He knows the nose, he knows odours, he knows the fetter that arises dependent on both. He knows the tongue, he knows flavours, he knows the fetter that arises dependent on both. He knows the body, he knows tangibles, he knows the fetter that arises dependent on both. And he knows the mind, he knows mind objects, and he knows the fetter that arises dependent on both. And he also knows how an unarisen fetter can arise, how an arisen fetter can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed fetter can be prevented. According to the discourses, to develop understanding and detachment in regard to these six internal and external sense spheres is of central importance for the progress towards awakening. An important aspect of such understanding is to undermine the misleading sense of a substantial I as the independent experiencer of sense objects. Awareness directed to each of these sense spheres will reveal that subjective experience is not a compact unit, but rather a compound made up of six distinct, distinct spheres, quote unquote, each of which is dependently arisen. Each of these sense spheres includes both the sense organ and the sense object. Besides the five physical senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body, and their respective objects, sight, sound, smell, flavor, and touch, the mind, mano, is included as the sixth sense, together with its mental objects, dhamma. In the present context, mind, mano, represents mainly the activity of thought, manyati, while the five physical senses do not share each other's respective field of activity, all of them relate to the mind as the sixth sense. So often they have the image of like the, the hand with the, with the uh, five fingers, or the four fingers and the thumb, and they meet in the palm of the hand so that the, the, the five senses are separate from each other, but they, are, they meet at the, the mind sense and they are coordinated by the, the mind sense, the mano ayatana. Manayatana, so that the, the it's an extra function that the the mind sense has is it not it doesn't just perceive thoughts but it it integrates coordinates the activity of the other five senses together. It's also unique in that so the eye depends on light coming from outside for it to operate, but uh, the mind sense is is also it's unique insofar as it's. It's the perceiver, but it's also the generator of thoughts. So it generates its own object uh, as well as, as perceives it. So it's, it's unique as a sense in, in, in that respect as well. So that is, all perceptual processes rely to some extent on the interpretive role of the mind. Since it is the mind which, quote-unquote, makes sense, unquote, out of the other senses. That's a good use of the term. This shows that the early Buddhist scheme of six sense spheres does not set pure sense perception against the conceptual activity of the mind, but considers both as interrelated processes, which together bring forth the subjective experience of the world. So it doesn't give, uh, even though there are a few differences, it doesn't make the the mind sense like a, a to something totally other, but it very matter-of-factly includes it. So that when we do the the, the fire sermon, uh, we recite the Adita Pariyaya Sutta. It just goes through each list. You have the the um, the eye, eye consciousness, the ear, ear consciousness, nose, nose consciousness, um, tongue, tongue consciousness, body, body consciousness, mind, mind consciousness. So that they are. This is sort of an, it's just six of them in a list together, so that the mind doesn't have any kind of special uh, ranking or is not sort of set apart from the others but is included as, as a sort of a, uh, a, a member of the, the collection of, of six of them. It is particularly intriguing that early Buddhism treats the mind 
just like the other sense organs. Thought, reasoning, memory and reflection are dealt with in the same manner as the sense data of any other sense door. Thus the thinking activity of the mind shares the impersonal status of external phenomena <coughs> perceived through the five senses. So, just as um, the colour of the carpet, I don't take that personally, or um, the, the, um, the colour of uh, Ajahn Hinksko's jacket, it's not me or mine, I don't, I don't think of that as something that, that uh, is particularly personal, I don't have to have a, a strong opinion about it. So our own thoughts, our memories, our ideas, our, our, our fears and hopes, as we are similarly relatable to in terms of just just another sense object, and again this is a, a a a point that I make over and over and over again, because culturally we are very heavily conditioned to believe our thoughts and to assume that our thoughts are telling the truth all the time, and so I often um, and probably I've given this advice to everybody here at some point or other, to listen to our thoughts as if we are listening to the 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 neighbor's radio, that. You're not even. You didn't even choose the station. You, you, you have no control over what the uh, um, what, what the uh, people on the radio are saying. Uh, but it just goes on. You, you can understand the words that are being said. That's meaningful. But you don't really care um, about what is is going on. But just like you can hear a radio program, you go, "Oh, really? Oh, that, oh that's interesting," and get involved with it. But you can't just say, "Well, it's just the radio. I didn't even choose the station. I'm not particularly interested." So. Why get so wrapped up in it? Yes, no. But then it becomes very difficult to make a decision. It can do. Because you don't know which thoughts to trust and which thoughts to listen as the radio. That's why we develop wisdom. <laughs> so you can tell the difference between the voice of, uh, of the Buddha and the, the vo voice of the disc jockey. And seriously, yeah, that's it. Because... Um, it's uh, it's because we we tend to uh, have a um, uh, an unclear relationship to to thought. We tend to believe it and take it to be true, and then feel oppressed by all the things that it says. We're not discerning what the you know what the different uh, aspects of uh, of thought are, are saying, or whether they're they're particularly relevant or, or or not, or whether they match reality or not. So, one of the the benefits of watching the mind is that you you learn to um, develop a, a, a more of a, of a quality of, of discernment. So that's why I talk about listening to the inner committee. It's just like if you put mindfulness and wisdom as the chair of the committee, just that you can be in a committee meeting and there are all kinds of weird voices and, and, and statements being made around the table. The, a good chair will say, well, thank you for sharing. They might be feeling this person's a total fruitcake. But... You know, it's still polite, and you're ready to listen. But okay, well, that's that's a completely whacked out idea. That's that's. But they're they're listening, and then similarly, when uh, when there's wisdom and mindfulness, then another voice around the table makes a different suggestion. You go, well, actually, yeah, I never thought of that. That's really that's really useful. So that quality of, of um, intuitive wisdom, that uh, mindfulness and wisdom, satipanya, is what is the most useful quality and then so we can listen to the different thoughts and feelings and emotions and moods that get generated and then uh, informed and skillful decisions can be uh, can be taken based on mindfulness and wisdom <clears throat> insight into this impersonal character of one's own quote-unquote thoughts can be gained even with the first few attempts at meditation. When one discovers how difficult it is to avoid getting lost in all kinds of reflections, daydreams, memories and fantasies, despite being determined to focus on a particular object of meditation. Sounds like he's talking from personal experience there. <laughs> so someone says, I want to meditate, okay, the instruction is follow the breath and then... What? <laughs> the mind goes here, there and everywhere. And so it can be a, a, a sobering experience to realize just how uh, out of control the mind is when you think it's your mind. You realize it doesn't obey orders at all. Just as it is impossible only to see, hear, smell, taste and touch what is wished for, 
So too, with an untrained mind, it is not possible to have thoughts only when and how one would like to have them. For precisely this reason, a central purpose of meditative training is to remedy this situation by gradually taming the thinking activity of the mind and bringing it more under conscious control. So that uh, over time you can think when you want to think and you can not think when you don't want to think. That's a thought. But that's a natural result of, of uh, mind training and, and meditation. The above passage from the Satipatthana Sutta lists both the sense organs and sense objects for contemplation. On the face of it, the instruction to know, pajanati, eye and forms, ear and sounds, etc., seems rather flat. But, on further consideration, this instruction may reveal some deeper implications. Often these six senses and their objects occur in descriptions of the conditioned arising of consciousness, vijnana. An intriguing aspect of this conditional situation is the role that subjective influence plays in the perceptual process. Experience, represented by the six types of consciousness, is the outcome of two determinant influences. The objective aspect, on the one hand, that is, the incoming sensory impressions, that's the first one, and the subjective aspect, on the other hand, namely, the way in which these sense impressions are received and cognized. And he has a footnote here saying, Nyanamoli aptly expresses this ajati kayatana, the organization um, of experience, and bahidai ayatana, the experience as organized. So the internal is the organization of it, and the bahida, the external, is that which is organized. Supposedly, uh, the supposedly objective percep perceptual appraisal is in reality conditioned by the subject as much as by the object. Okay. So supposedly objective perceptual, like I'm just perceiving Annie sitting there in the front row. Uh, the, that isn't the object, and the, the subject is completely unbiased. No. <laughs> It's a, that uh, the supposedly objective perceptual appraisal is in reality conditioned by the subject as much as by the object. The language I speak, the, 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 um, the fact that uh, I'm a human being, the uh, conditioning of having met a person before and so on, all of that goes to say, oh, I see this person. And the language, the conditioning, the age that we have, the mood, the, all of that goes to to create the object. So the idea of an unbiased perception is a bit of a myth. But one's experience of the world is the product of an interaction between the subjective influence exercised by how one perceives the world and the objective influence exercised by the various phenomena of the external world. So what's perceived is what how our mind puts the world together. And uh, the... Um, so this is a, um, so a very significant aspect of Dhamma teaching. So as I was saying yesterday, the Buddha was, was uh, probably the first phenomenologist. So he was saying you know, the world, it's not like the world ha uh, is, a, sort of, is a, a fixed and set form that is then perceived by this unbiased awareness, but rather what we perceive is our world, how my mind puts together the, this particular thing and says Amravati is this um, because that the, that patterning is is a, a product of the conditioning of the the perceiver and uh, in a very significant passage sutta number 116 in the whoops in the um, Sangita Nikaya this is um, section 35 sutta number 116 that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world, that is called the world in the noble one's discipline. So that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, i.e. nose, tongue, body, mind, and a conceiver of the world, 
how that's all put together, that is called the world in the noble one's discipline. And what, friends, is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world? The I is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. That in the world uh, by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world, that is called the world in the Noble One's discipline. So, Sangyuta 35, Sutta 116. So, that's a really, to me, that's an extremely significant um, teaching. And um, uh, it counteracts that, that sense of, well, you know, the, the world is like that. Well, <laughs> we, we uh, create our world. Uh, the, there is the basis of the four elements. It's not like it's not like the sort of uh, philosophy that uh, it's all an illusion conjured into being completely by our it's like a like a dream. The Buddha never says um, the world is a dream, but rather that our version of what we experience is our version of the world based on our human scale of things, because this is the the level at which we perceive with these sense organs. If we had different sense organs, we perceive the world in a different way. My voice would be, to some to some creatures, my voice would be um, uh, inaudible because their their hearing is geared to a different uh, range. Um, the uh, or the uh, the light in here would be too dim to see anything by, or incredibly bright because your uh, the conditioning of the eyes. Uh, and the scale of things, we, we experience things at a human scale rather than a subatomic scale or a, a scale of, of galaxies. So uh, <clears throat> the world that we experience, we might think, well, it's just the world. It's always like this. <laughs> it's got a, and it, it does function according to set laws. The four elements function in relationship to each other according to fixed patterns and laws. But what we experience is our own uh, conditioned perception of that. So uh, and that's a uh, a very um, useful uh, avenue to explore and to, to reflect upon. I find and, um, that uh, just that because what it does is if I recognise that my world is not the same as Caroline's world or Ajahn Chittapala's world, uh, Sister Kamika's world, then if Caroline sees a different world than me, I say, well, of course. Why should my world be the same as her world? Duh. <laughs> but if I assume that the world I'm seeing is a the world, then if Caroline or Sister sees a different world, I don't automatically think they're wrong. If I assume the world I see is the real world, and, is, and, and what I'm experiencing is the reality, then if somebody else sees it different, they're wrong. Right? Therefore, you get conflict. When you recognize, oh, well, that's, that's uh, that other person's world. That's uh, that's Caroline's world. That's Ajahn Chittapala's world. That it's their version. So why should their version of the world be the same as mine? Why should it be congruent? Aha! <laughs> so then we can get along with each other much more easily because I don't have the conceit that uh, my world is the real world. But I'm recognizing what I'm experiencing can only be my version of the world. It can't. I can't know what uh, somebody else's version is. Ja- yes, James. Um, does that apply to Buddha's mind? That the Buddha's teachings are purely human sort of truths. They can't go beyond what human beings experience. Well, you'll have to be, be a Buddha and find out. <laughs> the, the range of the mind of the Buddha is one of the four imponderables, the Achinteya. The so, teachings are... Just to do with human experience. Yeah, he spoke for devas and humans. He, like he said, what, what he understood was comparable to all the leaves in the forest. What he spoke was comparable to the, just the few leaves that, in his hand. So he only he only communicated what was actually going to be useful to, to the people who are listening to him. He deliberately withheld the vast majority of stuff he, he understood or knew. May, a lot because it was inexpressible. But also because it's not useful. But if you want to know what Buddhas know, you have to be a Buddha yourself. It's the only way to find out.
So just to finish this uh, uh, this last paragraph here. Understood in this way, the fact that the Satipatthana instruction directs awareness to each sense organ could have deeper implications in the sense of pointing to the need to recognize the subjective bias inherent in each process of perception. That's what I was saying. Uh, the influence of this subjective bias has a decisive effort on the first stages of perception and can lead to the arising of a fetter, Sanyojin. Such subsequent reactions are often based on qualities and attributes assumed to belong to, belong to the perceived object. In actual fact, these qualities and attributes are often projected on the object by the perceiver. So, uh, uh, years ago I was in a, a dialogue, um, the Dalai Lama was invited to give some commentaries on the Christian Gospels um, by this uh, World Community for Christian Meditation. And I got invited along to be to be part of that. And, um, <clears throat> and during the dialogue, uh, I quoted a comment by Ajahn Chah saying, when, when he was talking with a Catholic priest, when this, the priest asked him, do you think there are... Um, the, 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 the Christian ultimate reality is the, the same or different from the Buddhist ultimate reality. And uh, uh, Ajahn Chah said, well, if there's two of them, one, one of them can't be ultimate. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but also saying, yeah, but effectively, how could there be two ultimate realities? It, it's, it's, it's the same reality, just um, seen from a, a different perspective. So I made that comment, and the Dalai Lama said, no, you can't talk about it like that. Because um, you can't, the only ultimate reality you can exp you can talk about is the is your version of it. You can't meaningfully talk about that ultimate reality from a, a completely, as it were, unbiased perspective. You can only talk about your uh, experience of it. So I I didn't agree with him <laughs> at the time, and. Um, so I, I forget exactly what I said, but arguing with the Dalai Lama in a public forum was not a particularly productive um, activity, although I do have um, uh, tendencies to, to sort of jump in and, uh, and say my piece. But, I, then, uh, but he was so matter-of-fact, like, no, it's, it's, you, can't, you can't meaningfully talk about an ultimate reality because you can only talk about your subjective experience and how your, your mind frames that. That's all that can meaningfully, meaningfully be spoken about. And uh, so, uh, because there was a sort of disagreement, you had 400 people sitting in the room <laughs> at the time. Um, I sort of, after a little bit, I, I, I left off uh, the, the discussion, but it stayed with me. And because I, and, and, uh, I was so used to thinking about the comment of Ajahn Chah in that way, that, oh, it's the same ultimate reality, it's just um, uh, in different languages of it. But then, then his holiness had this this perspective well you can't really say it's the same because it, it, it you you can't extract your conditioning from the experience because you're a human being you're talk, you're, you're the one talking about it <laughs> and so i thought that was a really uh, interesting perspective and i hadn't thought of it in that in that way so in uh, in this um comment of the venerable analio here that uh, when you're uh, as you said that the uh, the attributes that you consider or, or seem to be refer uh, to be um, different attributes of the perceived object, it can uh, th there's always that element of your, of the bias of the uh, uh, of the observer, as he says. In actual fact, these qualities and attributes are often projected on the object by the perceiver. So that uh, I mean, it, it's. Uh, it's up to each individual how to explore that, but the, that um, when we use terminology to talk about ultimate reality or, or talk about the Dhamma and such like, then it's also helpful to be considering that this is necessarily... Because uh, I, I eventually I, I, I found I agreed with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and that I thought, yeah, actually, that, that, that really does make a lot of sense. And so that you're... Uh, it doesn't mean it negates the the insight, but it's also recognizing there's necessarily a a, a coloration, a, a particular um, a conditioning factor on the way that something is is formed in terms of words or ideas, 
and that as long as there's that that forming or, or conceiving in terms of, of thought or word then there's necessarily going to be the effect of your language or your your your, your education or your your background is your uh, the, the time that you live in is going to have its effect and so that, that uh, and I found it helpful in terms of of it um, making it clear oh, okay this is not some sort of unbiased and, and completely uh, um, say independent uh, realization it is through a particular it's through it's through a particular life it's through a particular channel it's, there's, a, there's a there's a form that, that that gives it doesn't mean it's it's bad or wrong but it just it's it, in a way it, it removes that conceit of okay this is a a truly unbiased and, and, and unconditioned perspective. So um, I found that was a helpful uh, comment that, uh, that uh, uh, His Holiness offered there, and um, so I'm very grateful for his input on that. Emptiness is formless, I think. No one on the heart suit who said formless emptiness, emptiness is formless. I know that, but I'm also aware that it's it's seven minutes past seven, and we have evening chanting at seven thirty. So there's form and there is emptiness and there is form. <laughs>